the reading uh, today comes from Genesis 24, and we'll be looking at verses 1 to 27. So Genesis 24. Abraham was now old and well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. He said to the chief servant in his household, the one in charge of all he had, put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I am now living, but you will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. The servant asked him, What if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? Make sure that you do not take my son back there, Abraham said. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land and who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of his master, Abraham, and swore an oath to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and left, taking with him all kinds of good things from his master. He set out for Aram Naharaim, and made his way to the town of Nahor, and made the camels kneel down near the well outside the town. It was towards evening, the time the women go out to draw water. Then he prayed, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, give me success today and show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I am standing beside this spring, and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a girl, please let down your jar that I might have a drink. And she says, drink, and I'll water your camels too. Let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this, I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Before he had finished praying, Rebecca came out with her jar on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah who was the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor. The girl was very beautiful, a virgin. No man had ever lain with her. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up again. The servant hurried to meet her and said, Please give me a little water for, for, uh, from your jar. Drink, my lord, she said, and quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. After she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too, until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well to draw more water, and drew enough for all his camels. Without saying a word, the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took out a gold nose ring weighing a becker and two gold bracelets weighing ten shekels. Then he asked, Whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She answered him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of that Milcah bore to Nahor. And she added, We have plenty of straw and fodder, as well as room for you to spend the night. 
Then the man bowed down and worshipped the Lord, saying, Praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. Okay, I hope I have my microphone very close and everyone can hear me. Um, Carlos did a very, very good job with selecting the songs. It's almost as if I feel like I don't have to preach because the last song we sang, it has my sermon in it. And Andes with his prayer, the very first thing that he said was very similar. So keep those things in mind as, as you hear. I'm going to start by making a very cliche statement. The gospel is a magnificent truth, but it is a true statement nonetheless. Paul describes it as something no eye has ever seen, no ear has ever heard, and no heart has ever imagined. Yet the gospel is often treated by us as a simple four-word message. Jesus died for sins. When it is so much more, we often reduce it to a mere starting point for our, for our Christian life. And uh, we make it about us, a trait which we are surprisingly good at. In reality, the gospel is nothing short of God's greatest miracle. It can never be exhausted of its power because it is the power of God. It accomplishes what God purposes. It has the power not only to change the hearts of unbelievers, but also to convict and strengthen the hearts of every believer, new, old, young, all of them. What we have today is, is a very simple story, a story of how God provided a bride for Isaac. However, in this small story, we have a perspective of the gospel that can help us understand that it's not about us or about our spiritual journey. On the contrary, you will see that the gospel originates from God and it reveals his attributes, even his nature. And at the same time, it is good news for us. So how does a simple story about an arranged marriage tell that? Let's start by taking a look at what, what's happening in Genesis chapter 24. Uh, unfortunately, because we have uh, time constraints, we read only the first section, but you might have noticed that the chapter goes on for about 60 something verses. So I'll, I'll very briefly tell you what, what the entire story is. So Abraham would like to find a bride for Isaac, his son. And at this point, he is quite old. So he sends his servant from Canaan, where God has placed him, to his hometown, where he came from, to find a bride for his son. Abraham is quite serious about the standards that he sets. First, the bride must not be a Canaanite. And second, the servant must not take Isaac back to Canaan to the bride, but bring the bride, uh, not to Canaan, but to his hometown, but bring the bride from there to the promised land where Isaac is. And he makes him swear that he would keep to these requirements. The only thing that would absolve him of the oath is if the bride is not willing to follow. The servant then sets out on his mission. He comes to the well that is just outside the city of Nahor, and uh, I hope you still remember the significance of wells from uh, last week's preaching. It was a place where guys met girls. So the servant, he came not only for water, but also to find the bride. At this place, he asked God for a sign. 
he asked God in verse 14, May it be that the young woman to whom I say, Please let down your jar so that I may drink. And she says, Drink, and I will give water to your camels to drink also. May she be the one whom you have decided for your servant Isaac. And it happens just as he requested. He asks Rebekah for water, and she gives him water and draws water for the camels. The servant gives her some gifts, asks her who she is, and is amazed that she is actually a relative of Abraham, for which he praises God. Rebekah then takes him to her family. He tells the family everything. He gets permission to take Rebekah with him, and the next day they're on their way back. Isaac and Rebekah then, they get married. This is what you will find in this chapter. Uh, as a quick side note, I want to warn you of a style of reading the Bible which is self-centered and uh, quite dangerous for the believer. So one can read this story and think, this story sets a good example for me to ask signs from God. But notice that we have no indication that the servant's prayer was good or honoring God. But it is true, we often face times of decision-making or times of uncertainty. And uh, sometimes the same, um, we, we have the same question as the servant here. Will I find the right bride? Which is, the, which is the woman who's right for me? Or which is the guy who's right for me? Or we could have other questions. Which is the right job for me? Will I pass this exam? These questions can be tough to answer. And they are times of uncertainty. And so we can, we can relate with these biblical characters, like, <clears throat> like the servant. However, we have to remember that the Bible is not written personally to us, and it is not written to address problems that we face every day. What do I eat for breakfast, and who, where, where do I work? It's not written to help us with these very specific particular issues. Why is it written then? It is written so that the church, the people of God, might know God and his holy attributes, so that they might know his redemptive work done throughout history. So if we read it with the question, how does it help me in this particular situation, we will commit a grave mistake. If you read a verse where, for example, Jesus says, your faith has healed you, and we conclude, I need faith and I will be healed too, it can be very disheartening and it can be very dangerous to your faith even. Remember what the resurrected Jesus told the two unnamed disciples on the road to Emmaus. Luke chapter 24 verse 27 says this, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that is Genesis, all the way to all the final prophets, Jesus explained to them, the two disciples, what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus and the gospel should be the lens through which we read our Bible. So then we have a better question to ask. What does this story tell me about Christ? What does it tell me about the gospel? A quick refresher course in Genesis will help us answer that question. I think Andes did a good job reading that psalm, which was a little bit of a uh, refresher course in the Old Testament already. But let's, let's do some specific recap. I think everyone knows who Abraham is. He is the forefather of God's chosen people. He was once a pagan man who was worshiping uh, different deities, but God chose him and he made a promise to him. 
In Genesis chapter 12, we can read this promise. God promised to give him the promised land, the land of Canaan. God promised to make him a great nation, to bless him, and to make his name great. And God promised that in Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. For Abraham to become a great nation, he of course needed children. And God promised him a son. In Genesis chapter 7, he promises a son to Abraham and Sarah, and he says that he shall be called Isaac. When God promised this, they were both quite old, and Sarah even laughed at the idea that she could bear a son at her age. However, Isaac was conceived miraculously, and he was born. And there's one last thing that I'd like to remind you all of, and that is God telling Abraham, in fact, commanding Abraham, to sacrifice his only son, the son of the promise. And in this story, what most people don't realize is that Isaac figuratively died and then was resurrected. This is what Abraham really believed. He did not believe God would stop him before he sacrificed his son, but that God would raise him up even if he died. And this is not just me reading something into it. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 19 says, Abraham considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he also received Isaac back. I think in the words that I used to describe Isaac and Abraham's history, I made it quite obvious, but Isaac is a prophetic symbol of Jesus. Let me reiterate three unique points of similarity between Isaac and Jesus. Jesus' birth, just like Isaac's, was promised beforehand. Jesus and Isaac both were conceived miraculously. Isaac was conceived miraculously by a woman past her childbearing age. And Jesus was conceived by a woman who was a virgin. Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice. He truly died and three days later rose again. Whereas Isaac was offered, but didn't really get offered. He had a replacement. He only figuratively died and rose again. So Isaac is a clear prophetic symbol of Jesus. How is that important for the story? In this story, we see Abraham desire a bride for Isaac. This bride was found through divine providence. She was chosen by God and she was called by the servant and then she was lavished with gifts. She was then entrusted to the care of the servant until she met her bridegroom. So you can see the picture grow from just Isaac to Isaac and Rebekah. And this story then becomes a prophetic symbol of the union between Jesus and his bride, the church. God the Father desired a bride for his son. The bride was divinely chosen by God. The bride was called by the Holy Spirit and then was graciously lavished with gifts such as redemption, forgiveness, holiness, righteousness, adoption into God's family, wisdom, understanding, peace, and so much more. This bride is also entrusted to the care of the Holy Spirit, the helper, until she meets her bridegroom, Jesus. Let's dig a little deeper than just the symbol that we see. A word that is repeated in the symbolic story is loving kindness. In your translations, you might have the word kindness or steadfast love. 
This word refers to God's covenantal love. It's not a warm and fussy emotion. Uh, it is not even a generic God's love for all people. It is the definitive love of God, which has its foundation in God's mercy and God's faithfulness. God's loving kindness toward Abraham is repeated three times. In verse 12, And the servant said, O Yahweh, the God of my master Abraham, please cause this to happen before me today and show loving kindness to my master Abraham. In verse 14, by this, that is uh, the sign that he asked for, I will know that you have shown loving kindness to my master. And lastly, after his prayer was answered, verse 27, he said, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and his truth toward my master. Notice that each time it is used, it is in reference to God's act of providing the bride for Isaac. It is nothing but God's loving kindness that led to God's provision for Abraham and his family. This is true also for the bride. It was God's loving kindness that had her included into this family. So we can ask an interesting question. Did Rebecca become the bride because she watered the camels? Or did she become the bride because God decided she will become the bride? I think the answer is quite obvious in verse 14. May she be the one whom you have decided for your servant Isaac. God chose her, and so she provided the servant and his camels with water. Because of God's loving kindness, Rebecca was chosen to become Isaac's wife, then the mother of Jacob, who would then be called Israel. God's promise to Abraham of multiplying him and making him a blessing for all families of the world precedes Rebekah's actions by several years. So since this marriage is a prophetic symbol of the union between Christ and his church, we can push further and ask the question, do we become part of the church because of our choices and actions or because of God's election? And I would be doing a bad job if I said this story can give us a conclusive answer. We have to read the rest of the Bible, and we can't find a conclusive answer to that question. And God's word is clear. I will, I will quote three very short passages. One is the, word of Jesus, they're the words of Jesus. Second, Peter, the apostle to the Jews. And third, Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. First, let's, let's start with what Jesus says. Jesus says to unbelieving Jews in John chapter 10, verse 26 and 27, You do not believe me because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, he refers to the congregation that he's writing to as those who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, to the obedience of Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood. And Paul, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, he says, He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. 
It is God's loving kindness that results in men being saved. It is God who chooses and calls his people. It is God who gives them grace, and it is God who brings them into his family. We are saved thoroughly and fully because of God's loving kindness and Christ's redemptive actions, not by our own deeds and definitely not our righteousness. This is an important doctrine of the church, that God is sovereign in his election of people to be saved and that we cannot earn salvation in any way. The payment necessary for our sins, the huge unpayable debt that we owe God, is paid by Christ. His holy and blameless life and his righteousness is imputed or is credited to us freely. We believe this truth by faith and God saves us. Even this faith, the Bible says, is granted as a gift to the elect from God. This, this proposition immediately makes us stumble. Or to use a very modern word, it triggers us. The, the idea that we have nothing to do with our salvation creates an issue for us. So why is that? A few, a few days ago, I happened to watch a scene from a TV series that my wife is currently watching. I don't know what it's about, but in this particular scene, uh, the main character realizes that she's gotten into a study program because of her Latina race. Here's what she says in her disappointment. I wanted to be accepted because I earned it. And this is how we like to think about salvation. I want to be in heaven, I want to be saved, and I want to be accepted by God because I earned it. We think that somehow gives us the necessary assurance and the feeling of, of confidence in salvation. But quite, ir quite ironically, if we earned our salvation by works, we would have no assurance. If the example or standard is Jesus, and Jesus is the level of righteousness we need, then who can be saved? Some might say you just have to get close enough. How close is close enough? It creates more problems than, than anything else. So it might sound correct, it might sound assuring, but this is a false teaching that says you can earn your salvation and it is very dangerous because it can only lead to two things. One, it can lead to hypocrisy and pride or it can lead to complete despair. You will either become a Pharisee or you will become like Peter when he says, depart from me, God, I'm a sinner. The gospel of Christ, on the other hand, it promises salvation and good works to those who are the elect, those who are chosen. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. There is no condition here. If you are my sheep, you will hear my voice. Simply says, my sheep hear my voice. We are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. To what? To the obedience of Christ. He chose us in Christ to be what? That we would be holy and blameless before him. 
So just as Rebecca was chosen, called and lavished with gifts and entrusted to the servant, the church too is chosen to be saved by God, called to believe the gospel, and then is lavished with spiritual gifts. It is entrusted to the care of the helper, the Holy Spirit of God, who continually points to Christ and leads the church to him. So at this point, um, you might have many questions and even objections that, that you can raise. Uh, if you have any questions, I think we can have a Q&A afterward, uh, after the sermon. So questions like, how can I know I am chosen? Why isn't everyone chosen? Why do I have to share the gospel if God has already determined all things? So if you have any of these questions, remember to ask them after the sermon. But I would like to focus on one, one question or one objection that is dealt with in this, in this very passage. And that question is, do we have any responsibility if we are already chosen? If God has already predetermined things, do I have any responsibility? So let's look at uh, verses 54 to 58 in the same Genesis 24. And then the servant arose in the morning and he said, send me away to my master. But Rebekah's brother and her mother said, let the young woman stay with us a few days, or even ten. Afterwards she will go. And he said to them, Do not delay me, since Yahweh has made my way successful. Send me away, that I may, I may go to my master. And they said, We will call the young woman and ask about her wishes. Then they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. Rebekah came to know about Isaac through his servant. She was asked a question, will you go with this man? And she had an obligation to answer yes, and an obligation to leave everything and everyone she knew to be with Isaac. So do we have any responsibility? Absolutely. We are first of all asked a question, and we do have a responsibility to respond affirmatively to the gospel when we hear it. We have a responsibility to die to our old self and live a new life given to us by Christ. Responsibility does not negate election, and election does not negate our responsibility. God will hold those who claim to be Christians and live ungodly lives responsible for their actions. As much as we would like to think that the promises of the gospel are so simple, these are the promises of God. We cannot wrap our minds fully around them. I'm not saying we cannot know the gospel or understand it fully. We can know it clearly and fully. But some questions that we have have to be approached with humility. The gospel is presented to us in many perspectives, in many angles, and some might seem contradictory. We are saved apart from the law to obey the law. God's justice is satisfied at the cross, and his mercy is poured out at the same cross. And today we saw God's will and our responsibility. It is presented to us in this manner so that we can understand it is God's work and that we can see the glory of God in it. How unimaginable it is that not a single human out of the billions that has ever that has lived in this in this earth has ever thought about something like it. 
So God, the all-knowing Alpha and Omega, he saw all of mankind living in sin and in his infinite wisdom and mercy. He lovingly foreknew some and chose them to be saved through his Son, who was the atonement for their sin. He chose us and predestined us to enjoy his goodness eternally, even though not one of us deserves it. This is good news, that undeserving sinners are saved, not merely offered a chance at salvation. At the same time, we have a responsibility to live lives that honor and glorify the triune God. Can our minds make sense of that duality? No, we cannot. But we are all sinners, and God has mercy on whom he has mercy. What we can do is we can rest assured that salvation is God's work. We are now free to confidently and even boldly obey God's word without pressure and fear of losing our relationship with God. The word of God is living and active. It reveals to us the glory of God. It reveals to us God's loving kindness toward his chosen people. It reveals to us the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is greater than Isaac. He is the son of God who came down to his bride, who came down for his bride, and laid down his life for his bride to save her and to wash her clean. He is now risen and at the right hand of the Father, interceding for his bride. He has sent the Holy Spirit to lavish the church with spiritual gifts to guide the church and to strengthen the church until she meets him. Before I finish, I want you to hear the words of Jesus, which he spoke to Peter shortly before the crucifixion. At the Last Supper, Jesus said these words to Peter. In Luke chapter 22, we can read this verse 31 and 32. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift all of you like wheat. But I have prayed earnestly for you that your faith may not fail. Do we not see the love of Jesus for his church? Do we not see the loving kindness of our God? Do these words not give the church an amazing assurance? This is the love of God that he not only made it possible for sinners to be saved, but that he saved us while we were still sinners indulging in our sinful filth. And this love is poured out on the church every day. No one who hungers and thirsts for God will be shut out, but they will be welcome to come to him and receive his blessings and to be abundantly satisfied. So here's a question. Will you come to him and find assurance in him, in God who is our rock and our salvation? Let us pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we do confess that we often forget the amazing nature of your, of your gospel. We make it about ourselves and we think that it is our strength that makes us desire you. But we thank you for your mercy and your loving kindness that you show to your, to your people. Help us, Lord, to see the beauty of the gospel and by seeing that, see your beauty. 
Help us to know you and your son, Jesus Christ, more and more. Strengthen us with your Holy Spirit. And help us also to live lives that honor and glorify you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.